Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. Before we get started, just a reminder that you can support the show on Patreon if you'd like to uh, contribute in some way, whether that's helping buy beer or music or uh, web hosting, all the tech stuff that goes into it, it does make a difference, and this show is made possible with limited, if not zero ads, other than this one, if you could call this an ad, because of uh, contributions from listeners just like you. So thanks to those of you who do help the show and keep it going. It does make a difference, and I appreciate it. And before we start, a quick announcement that I'll um, be doing some stand-up shows for the first time in a while uh, later this summer. So I'll be in some of my favorite cities like San Francisco, Sacramento, Portland, Austin, Minneapolis, probably a few more. So check out David Huntsberger for that, or keep listening, because I'll keep mentioning him as those dates get closer. Okay, let's get to the chat. Uh, I was very excited about this. We'll talk about it at the beginning that he and I kind of became more and more, I guess, friendly with one another during my uh, health scare where he was checking in on me and had some familiarity with that. And then we've hung out a few times since then, and which is kind of a trip for me in that I he was one of the founding guys of um, Mystery Science Theater, which I was a huge fan of, still am. And uh, I just feel like when someone's been a part of something like that, uh, it's just amazing that you once you enter into the art scene, there's a, there's a chance you could rub elbows with those very same people, and then you kind of shake your head and go, "This is crazy! You've made one of my favorite things, and here we are just talking like normal humans." He has a new album coming out soon. Keep your eye on that. We'll talk about that more in the chat, and you'll hear all about his life and career, and what a fascinating and genuinely delightful person he is. I'm thrilled to be sitting down and chatting with J. Elvis Weinstein. Enjoy. Got it. Oh, now God. <laughs> How's your voice sound Oh, to you? yeah. Oh, yeah. You, <clears throat> you've podcasted so much that uh, sometimes people come in, the science people come in here and then they put they put the headphones on and then they just go, <gasps> that's my voice? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm well aware of what my voice, I just, I've been editing my uh, album all week, so I'm oh, nice. acutely aware of my voice. <laughs> And I finally got around to watching, and I feel so bad that it took me so long, the, the Lewis documentary you made. Oh, yeah. And your voice makes an appearance in there. Yes. It's great. I feel like I know him so much better now. Yeah, and it's a great little story. It really is. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. I mean, the hardships and the perseverance and people. And his not family coming like, through for him. So yeah, much, yeah. Yeah. Over and over. It was awesome. Is that going to be like available? What are you going to no, do with that? It was just for him. Just a project thing? Yeah. Man, it's really cool I of just you. just got a bug up my ass. <laughs> <laughs> he just asked for the interview because he had said so much about his life in that interview, which is so unlike him. Yeah. That's that, the most I've ever heard him talk by a lot. Yeah. I was surprised that day. This That, that was in Hong Kong and um, he just opened up, you know, and so even he knew that that was unusual for him. So he asked me for just a copy of the interview so he could show his kids. And then, uh-huh. so I went into the hard drive and whoa, cause it looks like you have two camera angles. I had two cameras. Yeah. Yeah. Go, yeah. When I do interviews, I always do two cameras just uh-huh. so I have something to cut in between with. Wow. Um, but, um, 
Yeah. So like once I opened it up and started looking at it, I was like, his poor kids have to watch this guy in a hotel room for two hours talking <laughs> and like, so i started adding some photos that i knew i had and then i started looking up some photos and then it feels then like i joined a, a newspaper archive site and then i started <laughs> laying in music and i was like okay a month later i had a thing there were some things in there where i was like where did he find this yeah you know? I, I joined a uh, an online archive new, newspaper archive and found a lot of stuff that's what you have to i always wonder in documentaries they'll go like in 1921 the building burned to the ground and then they show a newspaper clipping right. burning like you just assume that's a google search but then anytime you go try to find an image yeah even no. things that you're certain like that's got to be googleable impossible to find no i'm shocked i was shocked at how little i could find with google and then i hit this i think it's attached to ancestry.com it's for people to look up their families and then tag them into their family tree thing uh-huh. but you don't have to do that <laughs> so <laughs> it's newspapers.com and it's like t- all these newspapers that have been fully scanned in and cataloged so you can actually search them nice well you did a great job oh thank you filmmaker you, oh you want to open these beers sure Ooh, doing a lot of cans lately because they're. IPA. <laughs> Have you had one of these? This is a hazy little. I feel like Sierra Nevada is becoming such a like a ubiquitous brewery that it doesn't seem cool anymore. It doesn't seem. It's a little fake microbrewery now. Yeah, yeah. But I still, I I grew up, or I didn't grow up. Uh, I grew up in Nevada, but I went to school in Colorado where New Belgium is. And then okay. now they're looked at the same way. Like Sam Adams, these big places where you're like, oh, cute. They're doing. Right. But I think they are still brewing pretty good beer. I they're think Lagunitas is the new Sierra Nevada. Yeah, that makes sense. Even, but they're enormous as well. No, they're big too, but they still have the small brewery right. patina. Yeah, yeah. This one has, feels like they're just everywhere. But this hazy little thing IPA, I've had before. Yeah. And this is one of the few times I think on the show we're like sampling a beer that I've already had. Typically, we're cracking into it where I'm like, here we go. Oops. But you mentioned uh, an IPA, and then you also said like with Bex or something like Bex that? Bex is kind of my, uh, if I'm just doing a, I'll have a beer, beer. Okay. And I think of it as more like Bex to me, I I was like, it's been so long since I had any Bex. And I remember it being pretty bitter and like kind of a sharp Pilsner kind of. It's a Pilsner, definitely. Yeah. So I was like, that or IPA, this seemed to me like it might suit you or at least be moderately okay. close to what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, I, I wasn't really pitching them as similar. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I was just going, that's what I drank. I, oh, okay. I either will drink a big old IPA or I'll, or I'll have a Bex. Okay. Because there was another one, an IPA that I had. So if you come back, I have another IPA in mind All right, well, for you. Or we could do Bex. Woo me. <laughs> I'll dazzle you <laughs> with my IPA selections. Where to start? Because we really became pals over. We opened for Chad at the Largo show, right. and then but minimal interaction. But then I got all sick, and then you had had similar stuff, and we had this conversation like at a deli, sharing our woes and <laughs> <Right. laughs> our hills. It was so nice of you to check out, check in on me repeatedly, and I feel like that in, that. It, always happens when you know someone's going through something that you've kind of been in that right. situation. Yeah. If someone, you know, I have, uh, I've been through lots of medical stuff, both myself and on, you know, sort of aside others. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a lot of like fear or squeamishness about it. And I find that a lot of people do. Oh yeah. You know, so I find if there's someone I like who's going through something, I like to at least check in and go, you know, 
someone gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I used to really feel like it was a weird compulsion. There's a certain personality type that would just check in on someone at the hospital. But then when you're around it so much, the, the people that you just assume would be there, friends who, oh, I don't want to see them in the hospital. I don't right. like seeing people like that. You go, what are you talking about? So I think that's where it comes from, from the other people like, I don't really know this person very well, but I do know how nice it feels when people check in on you or right. just show that they just, give a yeah. little bit of a shit. Yeah. It gets very, when you're sick, it gets lonely in a weird way. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I don't know. It, it, you know, I also have this thing where it's like, I've been in LA a long time. So when I meet someone and I feel a connection with them in some way, mm-hmm. I like to follow up on it. Cause it's not that frequent a thing. <laughs> you know? Well, I'm glad so you, you have yeah. to sort of, you have to sort of, uh, um, be slightly proactive with friendships too. So it wasn't yeah. like I was trying to ingratiate myself with, uh, <laughs> with illness checks. It's just like, that's what was happening at sure. the point where we were sort of becoming friends. So. Yeah, I feel. And then you've become, I would say to a certain degree, an integral part of the junk show. Oh, wow. I that mean, was quick. I appreciate Yeah, Only a couple appearances, <laughs> but just, just the, the, the vibe or like the, the feel, you know, of just kind of showing up. Like, yeah, I like doing this. Some people, you know, they do the show, but maybe they don't, they don't really have an affinity for it and or like the you guys like you and your wife just showed up and we're like yeah we'll play music and if you need us back last minute we'll come do it it was great so fun i i the people i gravitate to are people who have a love of the game mm-hmm. whatever that is you know and at this point i kind of consider myself just like a showbiz general practitioner <laughs> kind of and that's what i like you know yeah. that's what i genuinely enjoy is doing lots of different stuff so that just involves saying yes a lot you know <laughs> which is surprising because i feel i think people have <clears throat> a difficult time decide unless it's just in them their innate nature of this is who i am you know ego comes out of people in ways that you wouldn't expect right sometimes other people step back and assess well you know i was on the tonight show should i be doing this open mic right and you have other people like i don't care if i did madison square garden yes i'll do your open mic or right. yes I'll. and i there's still a part of me that when i you know ask people like do you want to do this show in the back of a pupusa restaurant i'm fully expecting a lot of people like I wrote for a television show or I <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like I'm good. But you, the fact that you were like right away into it, I was like, man, I like that. That's great. So it does feel well, very love of the game. Well, and that show is absolutely right up my alley in terms of those sorts of things as you're, you know, you're flexing a lot of uh, little muscles that you, you know, that, <laughs> you know, between animation and stand up, and, you know, and just, you know, and just that whole thing of putting on a show is its own little art form, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Someone the other day was like really, complimenting those skills and I thought like I don't even know what you're talking about I just kind of like email people and show up at a location but you're right like there are certain elements to like anything you do in life that you once you've done them long enough you're like that's not even a skill it's just something I do right and you're you become the sort of emotional mater d of the evening you know (laughs) it's like you are setting the tone just by who you are and the fact of who you put in that show and where it's at and the fact that you've stuck to it you know it's all these things sort of and that you you know want are sort of committed to putting these extra elements into it instead of just sort of, yeah, this week we'll do it this week. You know? Yeah. So, you know, I, th- I respect that a lot. Oh, thanks man. I, it ties back to your thing about like having to be proactive about it's fun in, especially in this location in the world, like glitz and glamor of Hollywood and show business. There's also so many talented creative people. Yeah. So at one time you feel like you're surrounded or immersed in that. And yet, do you really get to see it? So I like having something once a month where I genuinely see like filmmakers and animators and musicians and whatever else 
but it does take an effort to do that. It totally does. Because you can just be sitting in a coffee shop overhearing someone talk about back-end numbers or pivoting or branding, and you're like, oh, that's there's also a lot of that in this town, and that really bums me out. So yeah. I do think it's like a proactive thing to... I don't know. You want like it feels better having that sort of surrounding around. I mean, I, to me, I mean that's that's the only place I get nourishment. You know, because I I've, I don't know if I've always had it or if I've just sort of developed it over years. Is I have this sort of real aversion to show business. <laughs> you know, to to that thing that is show business as opposed to the making of things. You know, yeah. And so, you know, part of it is just. Being a control freak, you start to sort of go, all right, this is the universe I can control. Mm-hmm. And it's like, show business isn't that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, you know, so like I've spent the last 10 years making so much stuff and following my bliss so much, making so little money doing it, but also having the best 10 years of my career. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, so now it's like, if you take the 10 years previous to that, which was all TV writing and making a fair amount of money and all that, it's like, all right. That was good, too, in its own way, <laughs> but this is so much better. Now, how can I sort of showbizify what I am now, you know, is, I think is, the, is the weird question. The flip, not that it's a flip, but like everyone has their own sort of register. The person who's a teacher or something like that, or an accountant for 15 years and goes, you know what? And they tear off the tie and they head out to an open mic and they play a few songs or whatever. And then maybe they spend five years like, getting to open a little bit or they get a weekly or a monthly, you know, residency in a, in a, an Irish pub or something like that. And they go, I love it. I love it. And then if they got a gig, like, Oh, I'm the house band at this, that might be enough for them. Right. Like just, okay, I'm, I'm doing my art form and I'm content in doing it. I'm getting paid a little bit, but I feel like with you at such a young age, like getting into the accountant guy or even people that want to succeed in the arts would go, you, you got a job like in the industry, in showbiz, like you're writing for t- a television show. You did it. And the feeling that part of you would be like, still not quite free enough. It's not artsy yeah. enough. I need like the, whatever the powers that be out of it, or I need it to just be more like freeing, I guess. Is that like how it went? It kind of is that. It's kind of just, it It gets, you know, the most basic thing is that I'm happy when I'm making stuff. I'm not happy when I'm not. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't control that spigot, then it's, I'm going to spend a lot of time unhappy. Yeah. Because it can be a long time between when people tell you you can make something for them. Yeah. You know, and to give that control away where it's literally what is my happiness, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's something I had to sort of reclaim, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. think it was not ever that deliberate. That's only in hindsight that I see it that way. Yeah. But it's just boredom, you know, mostly. I mean, mostly it's okay, I've done that, you know, and that's my wiring is, is sort of ADD ish. And uh-huh. so, once I've done something, I really kind of want to do something else, you know? I I feel like mine is separate to that to a certain degree. And it's like this intangible feel of what the whole like Viacom corporate structure, they're always to me like the top end, like yeah. Viacom does these tendrils that reach down into every, like, what are people responding to? Make more of that show, but package it exactly like this. And it's made it like vacuums and sucks up all the people that are just happily making things. And they go, people are responding to that. We bought you now right. make that thing all the time. Don't ever do it for your own enjoyment. Just keep doing it for us. And then people are like, well, I like props and stuff. 
I'm getting to work with my hands and making stuff, but I have to make it to with these exact specifics and specifications. That's not fun. And uh, for me, like I knew, I just kind of felt like I would get snatched up by it. And when I did the sci-fi show, the most crystal moment of it represented like how that felt was that, you know, you're making a little more money than you normally do. And there's this like, whoa, like my jokes and things that I write and I get to work with a team of people. It's really fun. But the lack of freedom at one point, the show started and I like riffed a line. I'd been standing and then we come to the first thing and I'm behind a desk and I went, I'm over, I'm sitting down now or just something silly like that. Right. And the person operating the crane must have gotten the word like, Oh, stop. And then the crane just (laughs) lowered its head. The camera just kind of like, and that's really how I felt. Like just that joy getting sucked away. Just no fun. You get to do this, but you don't get that control. You don't get to feel like you're in the moment or the bliss that you spoke of. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, there are, there are also, you know, great moments that happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's, you know, like, Freaks and Geeks was a great experience that was completely, you know, couldn't have been more corporate. It was DreamWorks. It was NBC, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, we, you know, and, and it, and it failed within those confines ultimately, yeah. you know, but we succeeded creatively to our, you know, to our own pleasure. <laughs> you know, That's what, I mean, that show we thought a lot about when we were doing ours. Cause we would be like the, the costume people and the writers and the, the associate producers who just found clips all day, everyone liked each other. There mm. was no element of like, this sucks. Everyone, every day people come in like, can you believe we're getting paid to do this part? Like just goofing around the tapings and stuff were not so fun, but everything else, and they weren't horrible. They just weren't as fun as like goofing around in an office environment with people right. that you really enjoyed. And everyone would be like, how this keeps going just because this is really rare. And we'd reference all the time. Like, that was when you see everyone like from freaks and geeks go on and do great things. And everyone obviously like critically after the fact is like, and they made a horrible mistake canceling that show. It was so good. And like, it's just revered. It's yeah. And well, I think part of the reason it's revered is because there's so few of them too. You, know, <laughs> right, you, yeah. can, you can binge it yeah, quickly. It, it's like firefly. Did yeah. You see that like same, yeah. same kind of thing of people love it because of the scarcity or like, I think that's part of it. I mean, it certainly has added to its lore, but you know, I've gone back and watched a few of them just because I've done retrospective things and stuff. And uh-huh. It's a good show, you mm-hmm. know? And, and that thing that you're talking about, about everyone wanting to be there was very present on that show. And mm-hmm. all the departments were, you know, were great and everyone knew they were doing good work and want, you know, and so everyone was, you know, and, and you know, some of that credit has to go to Apatow and, and Paul Feig, mm-hmm. but I think Apatow, especially cause he was the true showrunner, you know, and, and he's, you know, he's a tough boss and he's tough to please, but he's, he, you know, he ultimately has pretty good taste and, um, and he was willing to play bad cop to the network all mm-hmm. the time on that show in order to preserve the creative, well, he was vibe. So pretty young then. I mean, it's not like he had, he wasn't Spielberg. He didn't have, no, a but he had, I'm sorry. I just, I just went, bah. <laughs> no, no, good. Um, no, but he had a $14 million deal at DreamWorks. Okay. Gotcha. That he had just signed as an overall deal. So he, you know, so he wasn't on the high wire in terms <laughs> yeah. of his livelihood. He could throw his weight around a little bit. Yeah. And he was, you know, I respect, you know, the only thing that you have in TV to make it work is clout. Yeah. You know, and he was using what he had at the time, you know, to fight the good fight. When it like for him, the clarity of vision getting to make stuff for the for everyone else, you know, like do you think that 
do you look at that like, well, life could have just gone any number of ways. Could just be a person that just, I work in my basement and I make things and I make things. Or when you want to make stuff that's a little more collaborative or a little bigger, especially television shows, you kind of kind of venture out and you have to like dip a toe into other people's waters and, uh, uh, you know, like appease them in certain ways or whatever. Like, does it seem like there was a, anyone ever gets like a perfect route? Uh, no, I don't think so. But I think you find out what's important to you and which fights are important to me. I mean, when I started out, when I moved to LA, I wanted to be a big star either as a stand up or as a showrunner, you know, mm-hmm. that was what, what I was working towards, you know, but yeah. as I worked for years and did all these different kinds of TV shows and went, I like that. I don't like that. I like that. This makes me happy. This isn't, you know, mm-hmm. um, that menu gets shorter, you know? But you but you have to check off those things on something, you know. <laughs> and sometimes just the the menu item is money, you know. Sometimes it just is, and I don't, you know, I don't look at it as selling out. It's not, you know, even though I I sort of view what I what I am as an artist, mm-hmm. but not with a capital A, you know. <laughs> it's just kind of how I'm wired, you know. It's mm-hmm. like I don't, I'm not a TV animal, and I'm not a movie freak, and I'm not, you know, I'm just like. If if I find if there's something in my head that I feel like I'm the right guy to tell the story, then that's what gets me excited, and 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 it doesn't matter if it's a TV show or if it's a movie or if it's you know a stand-up bit. Mm-hmm. That's what gets in my craw is like okay, I want to execute that thing. Yeah, and it's like a light switch that goes off. It, it's very binary with me. It's like once I see it, I get it. It goes real far up my ass, you know, <laughs> and I find a way to do it, you know. And I've I've made a couple of documentaries, and I've made a short film, and I've produced plays, and you know, produced albums, and you know, just because it's like, okay, I feel this vibe, I'm going to commit to doing this, you know. Your uh, energy being around you is very laid back, and yet when you see all the things that you've made, you're like, man, this guy is like proficient and productive and not a lot of people do a lot of people have good ideas a lot of people like i'm still working on that thing like to have an idea then start it so many people struggle with that i have lists of things where like one day i'll have time and i'll get to that right but starting it and then finishing it you you you're good at it well thank you i'm finishing is the gold standard to me Mm -hmm. you know that's what i tell kids when i talk to them now you know i did a master class at second city about a month ago and i'm like i'm like getting more and more sort of preachy about make stuff finish it make the next thing you know <laughs> it's the only thing you can control you it know feels but so finishing good. is part of the muscle and the growth and the development mm-hmm. is, is calling it done and then walking away and looking at it a year later or whatever yeah but if you're not finished i just you know and i've been in la for 27 years now since i was 20 mm-hmm you know, and it's like you meet all these people who are working on their thing and are working on this thing, you know, just to say they're working on this thing. <laughs> and you don't, I just so didn't want to be that, you mm-hmm. know. So I really, you know, I would, you know, and I, there's plenty of things that I haven't finished, but I tend to cut bait on them completely early. You know? And they're done. They're dead to you. They're dead to me pretty much. Wow. You know? unless, unless I have some revelation down the line that's going to break through that wall. Yeah. I will come up against the wall and go, yep, that's a wall. I don't want to break <laughs> through it. I can't. I don't have what in me, you know. But, that, that, but I won't fool myself forever about things, you know. Lately I've been, and the junk show ties into this, like the – just keep going forge ahead always forge ahead and then the other side people go well expecting a different result is the definition of insanity so yeah but that's a really hacky definition of insanity i think i think so too it's never made i've never met a, an insane person out on the street like yelling to the sky right. like you're yelling the same thing every day man 
it's gonna you're insane there's it's just so dumb to me but i do like the the differing sides of that spectrum of like do you quit too early or do you just plow ahead with the same thing over and over what you just said it seems like a really fascinating like no one ever offers that advice like go as hard as you can until you know something's insurmountable quit as fast as you can (laughs) (laughs) that's just for me you know but it is kind of how i've been you know there's plenty of projects where i i I dove in head first went i was really fooling myself with this you know and you and then you know if you don't cut bait it just becomes this this thing that you hate yourself about yeah I wonder how many people, I mean, I know a lot of stand-ups are that way where you'd see guys, you'd hear these stories. Oh, Judd Apatow was like, when he was a stand-up, would, wouldn't go out after shows, he'd go back to the condo and write all night, and then he'd be there all day writing, and you gotta write. And then I would always be like, well, he wanted to be a writer. So he was just like, sort of moonlighting as a stand-up, but all these other comedians would be like, I'm gonna try to stay in a day and write. And then at some point, you kind of realize, like, I'm not a script writer. Right. You know, a lot of, hopefully people recognize the things that they just maybe aren't the best at as opposed to going to a conference and going to this workshop. I'm going to learn how to do this thing that I'm not quite great at right now. Right. I am full metal dilettante on everything. I have to say, you know, <laughs> I never, I just like, I'm trained in nothing. I've, you know, everything I've ever done has been completely jump in cold and learn it on the job from stand up on, you know, when I was 15 to, uh, you know, including directing you know it's just but you know but i'm paying a lot of attention as i go you know all those years on tv sets i was paying a lot of attention yeah yeah. you know so i it's not like i go in uh i don't walk into foreign worlds Mm -hmm. but i walk into you know it's kind of like going to canada you you don't know everything about this place you know cars drive on the same side of the street i'll get it i don't know what 100 km is but okay (laughs) but you know so i mean that's you know i there i have a slight level of shame about my dilettante where you want to be like a master in something? I don't really want to be a master, but I don't want people to think I think I'm a master either. You know, I would say like that- I just starred in a movie. Mm-hmm. I've never, you know, I, I'm not an actor, <laughs> but I <laughs> but I still had the sort of hubris to go, yeah, <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes back to the art thing. This the the um, surrounding yourself with that sort of feel. I, we look at people like David Duchovny has a band. I think they've put out upwards of five albums. Yeah, I don't think anyone beyond just hardcore like I love Duchovny and always will posters on the wall. Probably to me, it seems like a lady that I have in the back of my mind, but I don't know her. But that's just the general stereotype I'm creating for like who's at a Duchovny show, right? But I don't think it's people that are going to like indie venues or they're just kind of like we're here for Duchovny but we diminish like his ability to be an artist in multiple mediums for whatever reason I don't know why you know when when people find out that musicians are good actors they're like how because they're artsy because they get like the theatrical (laughs) element of all of it yeah and I don't have that pressure of any fame pushing against me to jump between (laughs) these disciplines there's no the blogs are lighting up (laughs) they aren't even not even that (laughs) Oh, I've read some stuff. Um, so, you know, that's, that, I mean, that's how I was as a kid is I would jump from thing to thing. I'd spend three months being a painter and then I'd buy, you know, then I'd yeah. spend three months like stacking up keyboards and <laughs> making music and, you know. We're very similar. I, uh, yeah, I felt that, that we had that just sort of like. 
Yeah, there's something about, I don't know what it is, because I have that, when you were kind of like, ah, I'm just a dilettante and it's not going to change, I would always think like, what if your one thing you get really good at, like Tiger Woods, that's it, that's what you're good at. Right. But if what if the one thing that you get really good at is being decent at 50 things? Well, yeah, and I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I've embraced that more than ever in the last few years, really. It's mm-hmm. just like... You know, and I don't have I you know I have no one representing me because I'm not specialized in anything. So <laughs> it's like I need to find someone who's excited by this fact that I have this giant skill set. Yeah. Know? But in the meantime, I'm going to keep trying to add to it. You know, because I don't have a singular vision. You know, I, but it's I'm so you know I'm 32 years into you know since I first started doing stand up. So it's now it's like I'm sort of way past my sort of. Um, not my prime at all, but my ambition curve, mm-hmm. you know, it's like I've tasted everything now a little bit yeah. and I've had this great time tasting, you know, like I've played on Broadway. I've done, you know, I've done like a little bit. I've gotten this little Good. great taste of so many things, you know, that, um, you know, I'm not that interested in, in putting that behind me and buckling down anymore. So, but you know, but if someone came and said, Here's a writing job about something you might care about. I would probably take it right now, mm-hmm. you know, but it's not what I'm looking for. I just think that's so cool to say uh, the freedom of like the not that there's anonymity, but more so than say one of the Avengers actors or something like right. that. You know, they have typically a career trajectory that's looking kind of fun, and people are excited about their next thing, and then they get scooped up into that machine where people are like, "Well, now they're just doing these indie movies just to like." get their soul back or something right if you were nine months on location getting like heavily makeup every day to go out and say three lines in front of green screen you you may go crazy and yet you could never really say to yourself or to people around you like i'm not happy they'd be like don't you say that to me right. i have to go to a regular job you're getting all this money and you're gonna be in this big thing and finding out like that level of happiness that seems like a tough one because people go like well, i should be happy I'm in a. I'm in this movie. I, I should be the most happy, but you have to like really look at yourself and go. Eh, I, I'm happier if I'm like goofing off doing my own things. Right. Yeah, and I think that's why you find so many actors who do do that one for them, one for me kind mm-hmm. of approach to yeah. having a career. Because you know, I think this town, like you said at the beginning, it's like there's so many talented people around here, and you know, and this town is filled with the best of category from every town in America who, you know, who, (laughs) you know, in terms of showbiz industry who came out here. So you have all this talent, you know, and I found this making indie movies that, you know, you get incredibly talented crew for very little money because, you know, they're making money doing commercials, you know, but they didn't come here to do commercials. They came here to work on something that someone gives a shit about. Mm -hmm. And so they're actually very, excited and bring all of their energy and competence to the table for, you know, a few hundred bucks a day as opposed to their normal rate. Yeah. Because, you know, they want to be a part of something that represents that energy that got them here in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. The whole struggle part of it is not critical. It's not mandatory. And I think people, some people understand that of like, you don't have to be the guy strapping a guitar on your back and playing these terrible gigs and traveling town to town if you go and do like a FedEx commercial and then you can go play music when you like. Right. And maybe people won't look at you at the same like, they're really doing it right. Right. When I did the Edinburgh uh, Fringe Festival, there was a dude like curled up in this little nook playing and it resonated off these stairs up through this 
long like a staircase all you know, old stone sounded amazing people were just gathering around at the top of it just to hear the sound resonate and come out and then he came out of it and so i was like hey man you should, I should play some music on the podcast and then i was kind of asking him like have you looked into this are you gonna you know i have a friend that is like starting a record company would you and he was just like i'm just gonna go about it in, in this way it's almost like turning down opportunities because right. I think he liked the idea of like being on a train and getting lyrics kind of coming in that way and, and playing. And this whole album was written in Munich and this one was written in Barcelona and the, you know, that kind of vibe. And I was like, okay, that's what you want. It doesn't have to be your route. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I said earlier about you just, you start to choose about what's important to you mm-hmm. and what things you're protecting, you know, yeah. and that's, you know, as long as you can sort of protect those things, there's a lot of possibilities, you know. When you do the stand-up album are you, and you're listening to it, are you already getting ideas like you want to do a few more or like you going to move on to something else? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, uh, I'm, you know, right away I sort of get into producer mode. You know, I, th- I spent the first week sort of just sort of hating myself in my act. <laughs> um, just because I was sick of it because I was working it really hard the last couple months to do the album. Yeah. And then, you know, and then once I started to sit down and go, okay, because I'm not actually editing it. I, I did, in fact, edit a version myself from the tapes, but uh-huh. I'm just handing over instructions to edit it to a real oh, right. editor. Sure. And I'm now I'm listening to the his his cut. I start to become more of a producer, you know. I start to become more of like, how is this going to be the best comedy album instead of how do I look the best, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, hopefully there's crossover in those things, but uh, I'm excited to have to write new stuff and... Get, and shed this material now like that's that's what i'm most excited about is like like i don't think of it as the next album mm-hmm. but i think of it as like at least when i do 10 minute sets which i hate yeah i'll have more of a mission now because i'll have you know i'll have a need to fill the void yeah yeah <laughs> i remember when i started middling a lot all the headliners were guys that just were like mid 40s and just had the same hour they'd been doing for like a decade right and i and this was i and people were putting out albums then but it wasn't as available as it is now it was like steve martin and people like that had records and then if you're a mid-level person no i mean what the was, mcs i've worked with are on their third album yeah now, yeah because you, know? <laughs> you can go home and like burn it off your computer and be right. like, i have something to sell you right but those guys i felt like part of their creative like stunting was that they didn't get it out there and didn't get that fear or that excitement again of like, ah, what do I, what do I say now? Is there more? Did I only have these 48 jokes or do I have more stuff? Well, I mean, I think I always believe that it's like your first hour is just a conglomeration of what works, Mm -hmm. you know, and you get, and, and for me, that was that was poison when I moved to LA, you know, because I developed. I started when I was fifteen, and I moved out here, and I was twenty, and you know, I did hundreds of one nighters in between those, two, you know, <laughs> and so my act developed as this was the, just this survival act, mm-hmm. you know, about nothing, about traveling around as a comic mostly, and, you know, <laughs> and all third person things. And this is the late eighties when all comedy was kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, my act was like a lot of other people's, <laughs> um, you know, I think better written jokes, but mm-hmm. topic matter, subject matter, nothing interesting whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Cause I was 20. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, so when I moved to LA and had to start doing 10 minute sets and realizing that 
this was like a mountain of shit that I had built, you know, that, <laughs> that when, when you put it into 10 minute sets, it's like all those best jokes are about nothing. And now you have to, you know, so that's, you know, and that was also the same time people were going, well, you're a really good writer whenever they saw my act. Cause I wasn't that good a performer, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I was also a good writer and that's kind of how I made my way through road comedy so much was that any, any headliner who worked with me as a feature would come away with at least five new minutes of shit by the end of the week. <laughs> if we worked all week. Really? Yeah. Cause I would just watch their act every night and give them taglines and give them new jokes and give them, you know, and mm-hmm. so there was several guys who wanted to work with me because of that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. There are there, that energy or not, I wouldn't say energy, but like that, that, that feel when you're watching someone that's like not the best comedian, maybe the crowd's not that into it, but just, you know, like this person's really funny. Like they're really good at writing. Right. That's happened so many times. Where, well, hey, what happened to that guy? You wouldn't believe it. He got hired by, he's working on a show now. Like, well, and there were guys where, and, and this is like when I'm 19 years old going, you know, where I'm trying to like rehab their act because they're headliners who are that, who are mm-hmm. just really funny guys who had gotten lazy yeah. and didn't know what was special about them or about their act. And I would like, at that age even just start trying to go you should really work up this angle you should really yeah did you have a for me there were guys where i would see something i just would write them off and be like this person has lost the desire to do comedy they're just doing it as like the same way you punch into an office job well and it was that for them and in the 80s and like that generation of guys who i'm sure you came into being the sort of old haggard road guys were guys who it's like this was their last out for a bad career choice you know and it just so happened if you made that jump in the mid 80s and could get an hour of shit together quick enough there was work for you yeah you know and so they worked solid until about 93 and those rooms all started to die off and Mm -hmm. a lot of them left you know yeah but you know it was around that time when i also realized that the the venn diagram of road comedy and show business barely intersect mm-hmm. you know they just barely intersect yeah that for me was so disappointing because i'm out there like hitting the road and that was my goal so i was kind of like i did it what now and people were like you gotta go to hollywood or you gotta you know the, the, you gotta get the next thing and it was like, kind of like that mitch hedberg thing of like i got into comedy to do comedy which is weird i know right just thinking like i just want to keep doing this but that's that definitely died out we're like no 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 this is this has now become a showcase for you to get a partner, whatever, or right. a writing gig or whatnot. And so I would get angry when I would see people using it for that. Right. Like, oh, you piece, your agent told you more exposure. I'd heard people openly say that. Sure. You'd get on stage. My there are still did, people like that. Yeah. With you, not that you've danced in and out of it, but like for me, stand up was the thing. It was, it was like meant to be very, uh, respected and treated as such. You know, I saw people using it for other means or what have yeah. you. Like, God, you son of a bitch. I just hated it. No, I was, I, w- I was that way for sure. Mm-hmm. Now I don't give a shit, but <laughs> I really don't. I mean, I care about it for myself, but I don't give a shit what other people do. You know, I, but yeah. I feel the same But at way. the time I felt like, yeah, for sure. I was a purist, but again, I didn't have the act to back that up. I had the joke writing chops, mm-hmm. but I just didn't have the act to, to be, that pompous about it you know so when i came out here i when i moved to la it was with the sort of stated goal of getting a writing job and the secret goal of being a star you know <laughs> yeah and and i fulfilled the stated goal very fairly quickly within a couple of years yeah. i was writing you know so but but i still identify as a comic i mean that's at my very core i'm a comic yeah you know? and that's what i have to keep 
the the reason I still do comedy is because if that's true, then I have to do I have to do stand up. You know, I can't just say it. You <laughs> yeah, because there's nothing yuckier than someone who calls themselves a comic who doesn't do it. You know, people do it all the time. Well, they do comedian, and then I'll cut them some slack because they're like, well, technically, I guess Conan O'Brien is a comedian, right? But never would use the term comic, and like unless you've stayed in a real seedy motel and had to perform for people that hate you. You're not a comic. Right. At any level, whatever that is, you have to have at least traveled a little bit and done that and be like, okay, I'm a comic. And the people that, I'm like, you, I'm a comedian, I like cringe a little. Right. You've said some funny things on a podcast. That's not even close to being a comic. Right. So the distinction between those two, I think, I think exists in that capacity. I think so. At least as we're, at least in these terms. I think. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so like even, you know, I feel like I'm a comic directing a movie or I feel like I'm, you know, so, so I, if I'm going to be that, then I have to keep doing it. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I protect myself from bad gigs for the most part, you know? Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I think everyone's got to grow out of that where you're like, if someone, maybe it's the older, like old school, you gotta, you gotta go get every room. You gotta take all those gigs, and so you start to feel like, well, that's those are the rules. Right. Like, Wait, I don't have to follow any goddamn rules. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't right. want to breathe in their cigarette smoke and feel awful about myself. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass on that gig. Right. I think with the wage disparity or wealth disparity, that now I'm just like, if people get something, the the ability to be kind of snobby has somewhat disappeared. You know, like ah, oh, the person got this gig or whatever, and they didn't really care about stand-up in the way I'd like them to. Good for them. Yeah, pretty much, you know. Because everyone's going to find their way, and, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I just, you know, to, at, at this point, it's, I see it so much more as the long game, mm-hmm. you know, than I do, like, I mean, you've seen so many people's cycles over the course of all these years that you go, well, whatever they believe is happening is only part of the story. (laughs) (laughs) Our our town is filled with, uh, with used car lots that are filled with, you know, BMW 325s that people (laughs) bought because their first deal, it was always going to be good, you know? Yeah. The, uh, to understand the long game like that because everyone you know racing out in this frontier of Netflix specials or, or just you know making a documentary and right. you see like alright I, I made the thing I grew the corn where's the farmer's market and then you find out like it's just either saturated and or like the streets are really jam packed to get to this one place then the streets burst open and new places open up and oh I can sell my corn here right. but having the corn having done the thing is what matters that's the thing I mean and, and I to a fault feel that way you know at this point i've so and this is all self-protection really but i so don't care about the outcome anymore you know i care about the thing and once the thing is done i know i can't control the outcome so i (laughs) retreat to the comfort of i can make the next thing yeah yeah and stop caring about you know about i don't attach my self-worth to the success of a project anymore really because i know the landscape you know because it is just a tiny drop in a giant ocean and some of those drops hit people in the face and sometimes they don't or sometimes they go out to sea and come back in five years you know (laughs) so but but you know but i also think that's to my detriment too you know because i'm not good at promoting my stuff and i'm not good at uh at um at really doing that end of the work, which is necessary, you know, yeah. but it's not, you know, 
I don't like it, so I don't do it. <laughs> I, I feel the exact same way. And I I think you just have to come to terms with that at some point. Like, I am just, not, I understand it. I feel like if I were handling someone else's stuff, perhaps I could go, here's what you got to do. Do these right. 10 things. I see these working. But for me, I just can't bring myself to do it. Or I feel disgusting if I'm trying to do it in that sort of way. And I don't mean, I, that doesn't even mean by like specific actions. It's just, there's a feel to it. Like, right. am I doing this out of creating something that I like or pursuing something I enjoy or is there some weird ulter- ulterior motive? Right. And once I feel that, I, oh, it's disgusting. Yeah, once you identify the place of neediness mm-hmm. that it's coming from, is you know, sometimes it's financial need and you do what you gotta do, but sometimes yeah. it's just like, I want more attention today. <laughs> mm. I'm gonna retweet this because <laughs> not enough people saw it. People retweeting their own tweets to me is the perfect crystallized version of that thing. Of but like, I'll do it. I've done it. <laughs> you know, I cop to it because I know from just the patterns that the people who see the, the thing in the morning yeah. aren't the same people looking at it at night. So it's like if I had a good joke, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give it a, PM, a second show. <laughs> but, That's the craziest thing is like I see it. I see myself doing it. I, go, I can never do that. But I don't think I see all my friends do it and I go. Ah, what are they doing? Yeah, I go, no, I get it. But I also am not like, Ugh, can't can't be seen in public with that guy. Or like, I'm going to really needle him about doing that. Like, <laughs> right. None of it matters. I don't care if someone like, right. whatever that thing. But here's an, here's an analogy, if you will, if you'll indulge me. I, I thought of this recently and that like when you talked about the temporary nature of all of this and like how quickly it's going to go by and that there's this pot that's boiling a lot of the specifics of this analogy haven't really been worked out, but a bubble at some point travels up and everyone sees it. Everyone sees Shakespeare, sees Einstein, sees this thing go up, and then pretty soon they try to get their bubble off the ground and you're going. But then a lot of bubbles, I mean, it's really going, and every bubble wants to feel like they are the one. Like, is every other bubble looking at me? Right. Where am I headed? Oh, man, is my bu- am I a big enough bubble? Is everyone seeing how great this is? And then in the end, you're not going to see every bubble. You're not going to know everyone that happened. You are just one of them. Is there any purpose to it? We don't know. Right. All you do is get to the top and burst, and from afar, you just hear all those bubbles collectively adding to a sound that just goes... Right. And that's, I feel like, what we're all doing. I think to some extent that's true. You know, I think it's just a question of, you know, like the importance of who sees my bubble mm-hmm. has changed over the year. Yeah. You know, I'm pretty much concerned with my own bubble at this point. You know, so, yeah. you know, fame is unattractive to me. I mean, I'm in a business where if you do things right, you're going to get famous, but that's not my goal anymore because it doesn't seem like much fun to me anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just more people who will fucking take shots at you. you know? <laughs> I'm going to make a note here and play a song at the end of this that has an opening line that talks about that that i think is nice so you know so i have my you know i have my own set of ego needs you know i want you know i want the respect of my peers and i want you know i want people to know who i am but only within those very specific you know i want my brand to be a very specific (laughs) thing you know that i can't control you know Mm -hmm. but but i also you know have worked kind of hard over the years to shed some of my ego needs too because because it felt too much like high school to me. It felt too much like, why aren't I in that group? Why aren't yeah. I in that show? Why didn't I? Why? You know, and I just started answering some of those questions. It's like, well, because you don't hang out with anyone ever. Because <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you don't like going out and you don't like doing those kinds of shows. Or, you know, yeah. but, you're, but because your brain just wants to like, 
you know, it's like this junkie brain thing where it just wants to keep making you feel bad, mm-hmm. you know, about what other people think. And it's like, you know, first of all, do you even respect the people you're talking about enough to care what they think? And secondly, it's like, there's an answer to this question. If you really want that, go do these things and those things can happen. But mm-hmm. if not, stop bitching it about it and stop acting like, nobody likes me. <laughs> me, 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 me. You know? I love when people are just genuinely, authentically able to gauge the things they like, the people they like, the situations they want to be in based on just what they truly like. Yeah. I've, I'm always working on that. You know, I have that same thing. Like, I didn't, I didn't get to go to that festival or I didn't get to like, I don't like that kind of music or I don't like that kind of crowd or I don't, I wouldn't. Well, the proof is in the pudding for me was that whenever I do say yes to anything, I dread it immediately. (laughs) You know, it's like when I was getting ready for this album, it's like I called at the improv and said, Hey, I'm getting ready for this album. Can you give me some sets? She did. That was nice. Okay. It's a 12 o'clock set. I don't want to go for a 12 (laughs) o'clock set. I'm dreading this for two days because I want to go to bed, you know, I'm not that anymore, you know, and I don't want to go hang out at the improv for a 10 minute set for a bad crowd, you know, but I'm doing it, you know, because, and I was very sure to like have a mission for that set so that it was worth it, you know, (laughs) but, but that's the thing is like, if you, you know, I'm really just trying to stop wishing for things I don't actually want. (laughs) You know, but I found myself doing that so much. Yeah. And that's comedy. You know, not every part of it you're going to. Then you get on set and on stage, even if it's not a great set and there's 30 people and they've pulled the curtain a little so it's intimate. And then you go, eh, it's still kind of fun. Like, I'm glad I did. Or maybe you run into someone there that you haven't yeah, seen in a while. Yeah. There's always something where you're like, comedy is pretty good if you just like go do it. Other times you're driving home like, what a, what a waste of time. But I live in this dichotomy of really wanting to be this person who says yes to stuff. And I do say yes to stuff. But there's a huge percentage of that stuff I dread. That, yeah. You know. That's, I mean, when people say get out of your comfort zone, or everything you want is just outside your comfort zone. You yeah. have to make yourself do those things. And like, just, so saying yes is the part where you're like, damn it. And then you go do it. You're like, all right, that's what it takes. You know, if I'm going to go be in good shape, I got to like go get up early and or like lift heavy weights or things that I hate presumably. But then afterward, you're like, oh, I feel great. So it's all of that. I think that ties back into to like the, the enjoyment of having done it versus the need of like, you know, when you think of the perception of how things are going to be taken. I, when I was a kid would, especially during the summer, that was my season to like, I'm doing a lot of drawing and I would sit like, we were taking road trips. I'd put a big drawing pad on my knees and I would work on a drawing. It would take me like two weeks sometimes just shading and stuff. Then you look at him like that should have taken like a day, (laughs) but I was, I was learning. And the goal usually was to like either have something that was frameable or send it into this, to this magazine that would like, they would publish it. Uh huh. But along the way, I would sketch out, just scribble down things, make them for my friends, my cousin, things like that. And weirdly, my aunt's house has become a good representation of that feeling because she hung a lot of those drawings on the wall. Some I got in the magazine and I can like flip through an old magazine like, hey, there's my name in there. Right. Matters to me the same, if not less than the ones I see on her wall where I'm just proud of the fact that I did it. I'm just like glad that I made the thing. Right. Not that it went anywhere or that I... Anything beyond that, just that I want that to be in life to look back and like, well, I'm glad I made that stuff. Yeah, I'm the same way. And, you know, and over time you start to go, all right, I made a lot of stuff. (laughs) And you start to get a little more forgiving of yourself for the stuff you didn't make. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, I hope to keep having that feeling of, 
wanting to amass more stuff, you know? And I, and again, it's the outcome stuff. And part of this was an epiphany when I found that uh, a few years ago, Paul McCartney was like worried about um, the, the Lennon and McCartney listing. He was trying to get like Yoko to switch a few of his, the songs that were clearly his to McCartney and Lennon mm-hmm. because he was worried about his name getting cut off on internet searches. <laughs> and I really was like, fuck man <laughs> if paul mccartney can't be secure in his legacy like what are yeah what am i do, what am i thinking about you right. know like why why would i even worry about it and then at the same time my wife is a college professor so you know she'll be going has anyone ever heard the song yesterday but no one like an like an entire class mm-hmm. no idea what it is and yeah. so paul mccartney's kind of right yeah but he's wrong to worry you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, because that song was 50 years ago. Yeah. You know, Lord. so do you blame a kid for not knowing this 50 year old pop song? Not really. I didn't know songs from the 30s and the 80s when I was a kid, you know? So, yeah. so, you know, so at some point you go, all right, the Beatles are disappearing to a generation. Mm-hmm. And probably rightfully so. You know, they're, they're always going to be there for the interested. But do we have to keep this thing that, you know, I personally love, but do we have to keep this thing propped up for <laughs> half a century just yeah. so, you know, like, you know, trick people into listening to this just so you like the Beatles because you're supposed to? I No, I don't think so. You know, this shit moves on. I think it ties back into my bubble thing where the bubble of Shakespeare burst long ago, but it's been passed down so much. The Beatles would be that same thing where... what if there was like an amazing fife player long ago and everyone knew everyone knew his name from town to town they had to pass it town to town physically right and then we have we don't even know that that story even existed let alone that person's particular name right the beatles everything all we're so temporary and yet pretending that like this world that we live in is going to be carved out of marble and stationed somewhere for future generations that an album is a monument yeah exactly this digital thing this this thing that if it's not kept well it has it's nothing it physically is nothing right and yet everyone could sing along to it for a period of time now that's happening less and less but as more i don't know it goes on and on with art like you just got to do it and then hopefully people during that period enjoy it right Mozart comes on. Most it's not importantly, like did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy making it? Was mm-hmm. it important to you? Was it a, was it an, an important expression at the time you were doing it? And yeah. I don't know if you can get much beyond that. Right. You know? Yeah. That's what you can control. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you? I have more questions. We can keep talking if you want. I'm, take a I'm, break. I'm in. Whatever okay. you want to do. We'll come back for part two. We get even further into just the nature of why we do the things that we do and how to keep finding joy in them. Sometimes I'm a little hesitant to, um, to do these type of interview or to release them. I love having the conversations, but sometimes to release them, it feels a little bit too, I don't know, too like a revelatory. I don't know what the, or self-indulgent maybe, or that I sometimes, if you mention your failures then it sometimes can sound like sour grapes and things like that. So I hope it didn't come off that way. I hope you're enjoying it and, uh, listen to part two. I really like chatting with J. Elvis Weinstein. And thanks to Dan for compiling this show, putting it together. Thanks to you for listening, especially thanks to the Patreon members and subscribers. And uh, I was way off on the song. It's called The Shakes by Atlas Sound, which is a side project from Bradford Cox from Deer Hunter. I thought this was a Deer Hunter song. I get him confused. Same guy, but um, 
the lyric I thought was found money and found fame, found them both very lame is what I thought it was. And then in reading the lyrics, it's about a guy who found them very late and then had a mansion and his friends all coming over strictly because he had all this money. Uh, so this song really isn't about what I thought it was, but that same concept, you can, lyrics are subjective. Who knows? Have a listen. I think you'll like that. I'm always hesitant to play songs by like Deer Hunter and things like that, because in one hand, I feel like they get written up in Pitchfork and they're very well known. On the other, they're not extraordinarily ubiquitous. So I feel like they're a band that we can play on here and maybe you haven't heard them and you'll go, huh, check them out. I like it. Hope you do too. This is, like I said, from Atlas Sounds called The Shakes. I'll be seeing you. Thanks for stopping by the Space Game.